Welcome to this podcast on implication. My name is Nicola Miller. I am the director of the Institute of Advanced Studies at UCL in London. And our work focuses on cross-disciplinary research and debate of all kinds. And today we're introducing you to a new podcast in our series, Concepts for the New Normal. And the idea of this series is that we take a particular term and invite experts in a range of fields to reflect and comment upon it. Thank you for listening to the Concepts for the New Normal series. My name is Stefano Bellin, and I am a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the University of Warwick. In this podcast, we will explore the concept of implication. How might we be implicated in structural problems like racism, the decline of democracy, social discrimination, border slavery, and sexual violence? What are the background conditions that allow structural violence and injustice to take place? When and how does implication become significant? And how can we transform our implicated positions into collective solidarity work? By exploring the issue of implication in different contexts, the speakers in this podcast will address some of these questions. I'm aware that there are many different forms and degrees of implication. This podcast does not aim to be comprehensive, but rather to open a conversation and invite all listeners to reflect on how they might be implicated in large-scale structures of violence and injustice. The podcast was produced in collaboration with Albert Brenchat Aguilar and Patricia Mascaray Lombard, whom I thank for all their invaluable help. This episode features distinguished scholars in global politics, racism, architecture, political and critical theory to offer different perspectives on the question of implication. Our first speaker is Michael Rothberg, whose book, The Implicated Subject, has inspired this podcast. Michael Rothbeck is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at UCLA and the 1939 Society Samuel Goetz Chair in Holocaust Studies. He is also co-organizer of the Working Group in Memory Studies, an affiliate of the Alan D. Leave Center for Jewish Studies and the Chair of the Department of Comparative Literature at UCLA. Professor Rothberg is the author of three influential books, The Implicated Subjects, Beyond Victims and Perpetrators, Multidirectional Memory, Remembering the Holocaust in the Age of Decolonization, both published with, by Stanford University Press. His first book, Traumatic Realism, The Demands of Holocaust Representation, was published by the University of Minnesota Press. He has also published several articles and book chapters and co-edited The Holocaust, Theoretical Readings with Neil Levy, as well as five special issues of journals. His work has been translated into French, German, Hungarian, Polish, Russian, Spanish, and Swedish. The 
the implicated subject is a book about historical and political responsibility. And it really has two origins, uh, one of which is more scholarly and one of which is more personal. Um, on the scholarly side, I always saw it as a continuation of my book, Multidirectional Memory. Multidirectional Memory was a study of how uh, different uh, group memories of collective trauma intersected with each other and echoed with each other. And specifically, it was a way of um, trying to understand how Holocaust memory had developed over time in dialogue with memories of colonialism and slavery and during ongoing processes of decolonization. And in multidirectional memory, when I looked at the way that these different memories intersected with each other, I was mostly interested in uh, shared experiences of victimization and how a perception of shared experiences of victimization um, could contribute to uh, this development of a kind of dialogical, multi-directional memory. But when I finished the book, <clears throat> I started to become interested in other ways that histories intersect with each other. And I started to become interested in other subject positions from that uh, of, the, of the victim. And that eventually led me to the notion of the implicated subject. The other, uh, the other origin, though, as I mentioned, was more personal or autobiographical, and it had to do with questions that I've been asking myself for decades as a white Jewish American uh, man about what my relationship to the founding crimes of the United States is, um, specifically slavery and the genocide of indigenous peoples. And uh, I remember having arguments in my early 20s with other people with similar backgrounds where they would suggest that they had no particular responsibility for slavery or for, for genocide because, after all, like me, their families had immigrated to the United States long after these things had taken place, long after slavery had ended, long after North America had initially been settled. And I knew that this was a a wrong argument, and I tried to argue against it, but I didn't really have a very good vocabulary um, for, uh, for making my arguments and explaining my positions. <clears throat> and it was only later, especially reading um, some post-Holocaust philosophy and political theory by Carl Jaspers and Hannah Arendt, that I started to develop a vocabulary for thinking about the forms of responsibility um, that I thought clarified that kind of relationship, an indirect responsibility um, for a collective form of violence like genocide or, or slavery. And um, it was through uh, Jaspers's distinction between different forms of guilt and Arendt's reflections on collective responsibility that I finally came to the notion of the implicated subject. And the key point about the implicated subject is the argument that histories of violence and exploitation are enabled not only by direct perpetrators, by initiators of particular regimes, but also by people who are indirectly implicated in those events, who bear a kind of indirect responsibility not guilt, uh, because of their participation in large-scale structures or in large-scale histories or the way they have benefited from and inherited 
those histories of violence. So I argue that we need to move beyond the familiar categories of victim, perpetrator, and bystander, the kind of trio that, especially in Holocaust studies, the field from which I come, has oriented our thinking about violence, including uh, genocide. And I argue that these are insufficient uh, for understanding large-scale uh, traumatic histories, both uh, completed ones and ones that are ongoing. So as a kind of replacement for the figure of the bystander in particular, I offer the idea of the implicated subject. While the bystander is sort of passive and detached, the implicated subject is actually um, intertwined with various histories and structures, um, is not simply passive, but is participating uh, whether he or she knows it or not in these kinds of processes, and therefore bears a kind of responsibility as one who enables, perpetuates, or benefits from historical violence, or participates in structures of inequality and benefits from those as well. So as you can hear a little bit in the way I'm describing things, there are two sort of fundamental axes of implication that I distinguish from each other, what I call a diachronic axis and a synchronic axis. The diachronic axis of implication has to do with the way we are entangled with, folded into, as in the word implication suggests, histories that may have already been completed but continue to resonate in the present. Um, so histories that we benefit from, that we inherit, um, that in which we are connected to uh, acts of perpetration without ourselves being perpetrators. What I call synchronic implication, on the other hand, has to do with histories and structures that are currently unfolding or currently existing. Um, so capitalist, global capitalist exploitation, sweatshop labor that we in the developed West may be benefiting from without participating in directly. And that's a form of what I call synchronic implication. Often these two are intertwined and sometimes even inseparable, but I think it's a useful analytical distinction um, for um, making sense of different forms of violence, different forms of exploitation, being able to make distinctions and differentiations uh, between them. Once you start to recognize this kind of multiplicity of implication, um, and uh, the fact that we participate in various kinds of histories simultaneously and, very, and, are, and occupy various structures simultaneously, you start to realize that, in fact, people are not situated only in one way, right, in relationship to historical violence or contemporary forms of violence. So I offer also a category that I call complex implication, and complex implication is an acknowledgement and a description of the fact that many people, maybe even most people or all people, are situated complexly in relationship to, to, to various forms of injustice and domination. And so one may very well have lines of connection uh, to a history of victimization, say, as a post-Holocaust Jew, 
um, but at the same time be implicated in unfolding forms of violence in the present, say the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And I think this uh, recognition that we are in fact often complexly situated is both analytically powerful, because it's true, this is the, the world is in fact complex, but I think it's also politically important because I think a lot of the difficulties, um, controversies that often turn around things like the Israeli-Palestinian question, for example, have to do with this very complex uh, situation in which people find themselves related to those events, right? So for Jews, for example, again, speaking kind of autobiographically, we have a strong sense of a long history of anti-Semitism culminating in genocide, in the Holocaust, and part of our identity as Jews is very much based on um, a memory, a remembrance uh, of, that, of that history of victimization, that history of suffering. But at the same time, we have to be able to recognize that in the present, um, whether we're in the diaspora, whether we're in Israel, we are in fact implicated in other forms of oppression, other forms of injustice, and we have to be able to sort through the two of them. And I think recognizing our implication in the present does not cancel out that history of suffering, but at the same time, that history of suffering um, cannot be excused to uh, used to excuse uh, other forms of violence in the present, the domination of other peoples or other groups. And I think that notion of complex implication is one that is, in fact, uh, widespread. Our next speaker is Dr. Brian Glass, an associate professor in global politics at the University College London and a columnist for the Washington Post. Dr. Glass is an expert on democracy, authoritarianism, American politics, political violence, and elections, and is frequently invited on TV and other media as commentator and political consultant. He's the author of four books, The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's attack on democracy, the despots accomplice, how the West is aiding and abetting the decline of democracy, how to rig an election, and the forthcoming corruptible, who gets power and how it changes us. Professor Klaas is also the host of the Power Corrupts podcast, one of the best podcast series I've listened to since the pandemic started. You can find all the episodes at powercorruptspodcast.com. Several years ago, after I finished a stint of field research in Madagascar, an island up the coast of East Africa, I flew back to the United States. I'd been in Antananarivo, studying the political dysfunction, the corruption, and the violence that has transformed an idyllic magical island into one of the world's poorest countries. On the way to the airport to catch my flight, I saw the all-too-common but nevertheless heartbreaking scene outside my taxi window that I'd grown used to. There was a young girl scrounging for food in piles of trash by the side of the road. The average person in Madagascar lives on about $1.50 per day. It's just about a pound every day. When my plane landed in America, I had a layover at the airport. While waiting for my connection, a woman in front of me at the Starbucks, who was buying a $5 frappuccino with extra shots of everything you could imagine, began shouting at the barista for screwing up her order. It was impossible not to think about how that frappuccino was worth more than three days of wages for the average person on the island that I had just left or how the face of that little girl in the trash piles 
would have lit up if she had been able to taste fresh shots of vanilla syrup, syrup that had almost certainly come from vanilla pods in Madagascar, the world's leading producer of vanilla, instead of the rancid food that she was actually eating. And yet, somehow, most of us never think like that. We're rarely jolted from our comfortable existences with those haunting images. And most importantly, few of us ever recognize that we are implicated in the tragedies of everyday suffering that define literally billions of lives across the globe. Billions of lives that often have no voice in the systems or the decisions that affect their life chances. I had nothing to do with the fact that I was born in the United States, the richest democracy on the planet. I was just lucky. I ended up with all my needs met in a loving family in a safe country where my voice actually mattered for the political decisions that would affect my life. In the lottery of birth, I hit the jackpot. But that victory comes with responsibility. People who live in rich, powerful democracies have unique power to help mitigate the suffering of those who don't. People who have a voice in their governments in the West have a responsibility to use that voice to help ensure that other voices are heard across the world in their governments. And yet, when we go to cast our ballots, we almost always think about our own life chances. Elections are won and lost in places like the U.S., the U.K., France, Japan, Canada, Germany, places like that, not based on which politician will have a foreign policy that empowers others and makes the world more democratic, but based on tax rates and healthcare costs and culture wars. All of that, of course, makes sense. We have a voice and we're entitled to use it for whatever ends we desire. And it's natural that people vote based on decisions that affect themselves. But we should at least consider those who are silenced by authoritarian regimes, those who are unable to speak out, and those who often just want more powerful governments in the West to put pressure on the dictators and despots who oppress them, to embrace at least some democratic reforms. We who are the lucky citizens of rich democracies are, in a word, implicated in the fate of democracy globally. We're the people who will determine the strength of our own republics, but we're also the people who can give oppressed people elsewhere a fighting chance. And yet, in some elections in Western countries, the majority of people don't even bother to vote. They take that privilege for granted, and they don't use it. It's a statement about the huge privilege we have been granted and how it isn't even worth the minor inconvenience it takes in the time to vote for some people. It's the political equivalent of greedily slurping down an overpriced frappuccino directly in front of a little malnourished girl who is starving. It's that level of callous indifference. Democracy isn't self-sustaining. It's not self-repairing. It's only as strong as the people who, through their actions, make it resilient. But from a global perspective, it's also up to us not just to make democracy inspiring and desirable as a form of government, but also to make it achievable for others. That means electing leaders who make promoting democracy a priority of their political platforms. Because ultimately, political systems that allow children to starve and corruption to flourish don't have to exist, and we can do our part to vanquish them. Having listened to Rothberg's and Grassi's thoughts on implication, we will now move to a third domain of discussion, architecture. The next contribution is from Dr. Jennifer Feng, a senior lecturer in architecture at the University of Sydney. Dr. Feng is an expert on the relations between migration and the built environment, with a focus on Pacific and Asian countries. 
Her international research on forced displacement and humanitarian aid has been recognized by multiple renowned institutions. Dr. Feng is also the author and co-editor of Crafting Enlightenment, Artisanal Histories and Transnational Networks, as well as several books, chapters, and journal articles. Her current research, entitled Wards Watchmen, Multinational Contractors and the Refugee Crisis, examines how private contractors who provide humanitarian services have contributed to the global growth of the tension industrial complex, and specifically, how humanitarian aid has become a corporate, if not outsourced, form of ethical responsibility by state governments. Implication. As someone who is trained as an architect and architectural historian, I contemplate how buildings, people, and sites around the world are implicated in asymmetrical power relationships or government regimes that control borders in order to protect their citizens. More often than not, when someone mentions the term implication, such a term applies to human beings. However, I think primarily of buildings and infrastructure and how they're represented within cultural, economic, and political contexts. Implication is not a common term in the field of architecture and doesn't lend itself easily to non-human subjects. But how is the built environment implicated in issues like migrations and forced displacement? How do buildings impact how we see particular political issues like immigration and asylum? And I think there are many possible answers in this regard. One might be that buildings revolve around accessibility, and by extension, how accessibility frames the responsibility of the architect to create equal and just spaces, particularly humane spaces for those on the move. Accessibility also applies to the public who visit buildings and, of course, their interactions in these spaces. But implication also leads to other related concepts around guilt, responsibility, complicity, and solidarity. Certainly the way in which buildings are designed strongly evokes sentiments related to contentious political narratives, that of empathy, melancholy, and even violence. But for me, buildings are implicated subjects themselves. They are created by those who are aligned with power and privilege, and yet maybe are not direct agents of harm, sometimes more than not. But buildings have also contributed and benefited from regimes of domination, both in invisible and visible ways. So it is kind of difficult to untangle how they are embedded within these systems. But they also dictate the terms in which the physical environment alters and conditions human behavior. Referring to asylum seekers and refugees, such histories of harm involving typologies such as detention centers and prisons are numerous. We can think of Australia's Operation Sovereign Borders, for example, that has been dedicated to funneling asylum seekers to offshore processing centers located in other countries. Such centers are perpetrators of injustice, seeding urban infrastructure that will last for decades, roadways, docks and ports, building foundations, and even other types of temporary structures. Perhaps another way to also think about the built environment and implication is to trace further back how buildings were financed in the first place. That is, multinational corporations which are responsible for the erection and the management of infrastructure related to detention and incarceration have become frontline agents in the global refugee crisis. Global companies commissioned as third-party contractors now stand in for the architect as the primary executor of transnational agreements. 
These contracts are often protected by state governments who refuse to disclose the nature of these agreements. And these corporations are responsible for designing, constructing, and even maintaining detention facilities in the name of these state governments. If we think of the employees who work at these corporations, then they too are implicated in the execution and design of the inhumane spaces that continue to hold asylum seekers and refugees, sometimes for years at a time. It is hard to draw a clear line where the ethics of responsibility ends. And at this rate, there could be hundreds of millions of implicated actors who are contributing to the forced displacement of asylum seekers. But on a brighter note, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are many religious actors who actually work rather tirelessly in the realm of humanitarian aid. They attempt to provide free assistance for both transit and community housing when asylum seekers are in desperate need. They are often underfunded and even more so underappreciated for their efforts. In Sydney, Australia, where I am based, the JRS, or the Jesuit Refugee Service, is one of these groups who are trying to locate housing for individuals and families when their bridging visas have come to an end. Their options are sometimes limited, particularly to real estate or properties that are donated by their own congregation members. Nonprofit groups like the Refugee Council of Australia have also tried to bring greater awareness of these political issues around mandatory detention and the legal mistreatment of asylum seekers. For every act of implication, perhaps there is a greater act of both care and kindness that could offset the corporate takeover of human rights. Our fourth speaker is Dr. Maya Goodfellow, a writer and academic who specializes in the relationships between race, bordering, and capitalism. Dr. Goodfellow is currently Diverhume Early Career Fellow at the University of Sheffield, where she's conducting a, a research project that studies the forms of racism produced by what she calls the politics of the center. As well as exploring the discursive nature of processes of racialization, her research is specifically concerned with the material elements of racism, such as the relationship between profit-making and immigration enforcement. Dr. Goodfellow is the author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, published by Verso in 2019. The book was long listed for the Jalak Prize and received excellent reviews in academic journals and among the general public. Dr. Goodfellow has also written for The Guardian, New Statesman, and The New York Times, among others, and regularly appears on channels such as the BBC and Sky News. During the UK's first lockdown, we were repeatedly told that we were all in it together. But the pandemic exposed deep existing inequalities in this country and globally, which left certain people more exposed and more at risk. This was the case for many people who were classified as immigrants. Despite some minor changes to the rules, the UK government actively work to keep the immigration system going, including the hostile environment. The results of this were clear. Some people have been too scared to go to their local hospital, fearing their data will be shared, they'll be charged or they'll eventually be detained or deported. While others who have no access to the UK's social safety net 
have had to choose between going out to work and contracting the virus or becoming destitute. People classified as British citizens might reject the hostile environment. Some, like those involved in groups like Docs Not Cops, importantly actively resist the government's demands to check people's documents and be involved in other forms of bordering. But how might some of us be implicated in creating the narratives that are actually central to the very policies that we reject? This isn't about individualistic blame, guilt, or some kind of judgmental political purity is about recognising how we might feed into the existing narratives that underpin such punitive policies, as well as how we might contribute to acts of bordering. When people talk about migrants as contributors, for instance, that is, people who do important jobs or as a group that contributes to the economy, they implicitly reproduce the idea of a good and useful immigrant. This treats people's humanity and their right to move as contingent upon their perceived contribution shutting out anyone who doesn't fit into this mould, often buttressing the racialised image of the undocumented migrant. This might not be intentional or is in fact counter to what they are trying to achieve, but it is nonetheless the outcome. And we have seen this during the pandemic. The NHS surcharge is scrapped for health and care workers, but not for anyone else. Here, people's rights are dependent on what their contribution is seen to be. We are all implicated in a world where some people have the right to move freely while others are criminalised for doing so, where wealth is so unevenly distributed that some people have no choice other than to move, and where certain people in the UK are at times celebrated for being a so-called migrant doctor or nurse, while others are shut out from accessing the very basic things we all need to live because they were born in a certain country, because they are poor, or because they are racialised as a threat. We are all connected. Every single person's right in humanity should matter. Yet instead, the borders which produce such violence are lauded as rational and necessary. One of the ways to combat this, then, is not just to continuously respond to the current political worlds and terrains. It is actually to imagine new ones altogether and work towards them collectively. It seems appropriate to conclude this podcast with Alexis Shotwell, a professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University in Ottawa. Professor Shotwell works in social and political theory with a current focus on complicity and complexity as a ground for ethical and political action. Her areas of research include environmental justice, racial formation, disability, unspeakable and unspoken knowledge, sexuality, gender, and collective political transformation. Shotwell is the author of two wonderful books, Knowing Otherwise, Race, Gender, and Implicit Understanding, and Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. And she's currently working on a project called Collecting Our People, which begins from the understanding that we face multiple wicked problems that we cannot solve alone and for which we are not equally responsible. Complex things like global warming, systemic racism, and chemical pollution. Professor Shotwell will offer us some reflections on how we can move from implication to action and connection.
think it's not trivial, but it's uh, accessible, it's common, it's something that many of us do to discover our implication. As soon as we try to do something about something we care about, we're right there in the middle of recognizing that we're involved in things that we wish were not this way. And in my work, I'm really interested in asking, I think we can ask, what does it mean for us to start from implication and to turn toward action and connection instead of recognizing implication and thinking that the best thing we can do or the only thing we can do is to disavow that connection or that implication. So whatever our field of uh, care is, whatever we are interested in, whatever we feel implicated with, for me, we can look at exactly the places that we want to turn away and to feel like that isn't our fault or uh, we're doing all the recycling or we've made every lifestyle change that's possible, you know, therefore we're not implicated, we're pure, we're free. To do the opposite of that, to turn toward the thing that we feel uh, we don't want to be connected to and to take that feeling, that wish that it were otherwise, that wish that it were otherwise so strongly that we actually want to pretend we're not connected and go toward it. So I think in part this is starting with just feeling what it feels like to really care about something and to want it to be otherwise and to recognize that we can't personally solve it. To actually start by just feeling what that feels like is a gift of implication. And one of the things that gift gives us is an orientation toward history, toward the way that we inherit whole systems, patterns, material circumstances that were, um, they're out of our control. We didn't choose them. We just benefit from them or they're the structure of our life, right? So gas lines, coal companies, uh, electricity, water use for flushing toilets. So many infrastructural things are beyond our control. They're part of the history we inherit. Property relations, whiteness, uh, so much. And we can also see the way that we have uh, differential distributions of present benefit. So some of us uh, live better because others live worse. And if we really feel that feeling, um, that's actually a good place to start for doing something different than pretending we're not connected. One of the places I take my um, injunction here is from one of my teachers, Donna Haraway, who uh, set out what she called an ethical and methodological principle, which is to critically analyze or deconstruct or engage only that which I love, she says, and only that in which I am deeply implicated. So to never pretend that you're pure or uh, cut off or able to solve something just by being disconnected. 
I want to say, I think that's a really great place to start. And we can move from there towards something that's a little bit more effective. So effective here means we could change this world. It doesn't have to be this way. That realization, that understanding that it does not have to be this way is an effect of recognizing that we're implicated and that we repudiate that implication. But if we're going to do this well, one of the things we're pushing against is decades and years of individualism and the belief that what's called for, for from us is individual heroism and martyrdom. In fact, what's called for from us is connection, is coming together and building power, building collectivities. We're at the end of a, a long period where social movements globally have not been ascendant, where neoliberalism continues to dominate, and where lifestyleism sometimes feels like the only thing we can do. But more and more, as we see the rise of movements for Black lives, the rise of people standing together with migrants and undocumented people, the rise of people standing against fascism and white supremacism, the rise of people who care deeply about the climate and about making this a world in which many worlds can live, we can say, all of us together can change this. So we can train up, we can study how to be together. And I'll just suggest three different ways that I'm finding very helpful here. First, we can start by cultivating the kinds of friendships and interpersonal relationships that nourish our being our best selves. Whatever that specificity and that particularity is. So here I'm drawing on a concept from Aristotle that the way that we become our best selves is through helping others be their best selves uh, and allowing them to call us in to our own particular, unique, situated excellence. So that might not seem political, uh, but actually it's necessary that we start relating to other people and other beings and other ecosystems as friends, that we make friends, including with ourselves, with all of our imperfections and the ways that we mess up and fall down and don't meet our own goals, um, extending friendship and sort of mercy to ourselves and others is one good place to start. Next, we can build up this capacity to be what sometimes we call fellow travelers or comrades. So this is people that we're working together with on something political that probably is kind of precise and specific, that has a strategy, that has tactics, that we can evaluate if we're winning, that we can start over when we lose, which we mostly do, let's be honest, that uh, we can, when we win, take those wins as the terrain of struggle for future work. So that's comradeship. That's having lateral relations of solidarity 
where we don't necessarily have to be friends, but we have a shared world that we're working to build. It might not exist yet. We're making it in our work together. I'm personally a big fan of making actual formal collectives and setting up structures for them, having infrastructure, having policies and practices and duration. So the third way that we can work on this, um, and I'm talking about this in terms of calling each other in, of collecting our people, of, uh, in this final case of what I'm calling claiming bad kin. So the third form of relationality that I think we can build to tune in to our implication and turn it into action is resistance. So direct opposition is a form of relationship and it's powerful. So this means if we are white people who care about anti-racism and take seriously our history, we can say, what is the best way that I can be treasonous toward whiteness? How can I stand directly against white supremacists who are claiming me as their kin and refuse them and shut them down and deplatform them? I am implicated in their work and therefore I can oppose them. And wherever we're looking, there's going to be some kind of space for opposition like that, I think. It's very inspiring, but we can only do that long, long opposition, that long taking our implication and standing against it when we also have friends and when we also have fellow travelers and comrades. So anytime we feel implicated, I want us to notice that as a point of feeling connected and taking it as traction for making a different world together. I'm so interested in all of us doing that with each other. <laughs> <laughs>